0: Show you a better way. Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, November the 4th, 2021. This is episode uh, 2,982 as we rock on toward episode 3,000 of the Survival podcast. That will happen sometime this year. Anyway, uh, today is Thursday, so it is time for an expert council Q and A. Uh, we were gone for a while there with the uh, w- with the trip to Florida. We will be gone again next week, somewhat. Uh, we will have live streaming from the workshop Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, unless something just goes to hell with the technology. We will have that for you. Uh, we'll have a few rewinds Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday next week. We'll be back to our regular scheduled program all the way up till uh, Christmas vacation. And that means that we have the expert council geared up and ready to go for you. Today we lead off with our Ron Paul Liberty segment. Ron today has answered the question, if you can't steal, why should the government be able to steal, along with some of his crew over there at the Liberty Report? And also asking the question, we feel like the world is falling apart. Is it? Is the world really falling apart? Maybe the world's not falling apart. Maybe the fake world that they've created for you is what's actually crumbling and falling apart. And will there be some punishment, or at least has there been some punishment in Virginia? All of that from Ron and his crew. Uh, You'll hear from Ron, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini in that segment. Uh, Next, we have Dr. Ken Berry talking about the health impacts of swing shift work. Tim Toolman Cook will be talking about shark bites for copper repairs. What the is a shark bite? Well, if you go to me, with me to Florida, it's the little trimmings off the shark rolled up in fried non-keto style. Um, but they're actually a pretty cool little implement that you can use to repair copper pipes. And he's also going to talk about drywall screws and automating the process of doing drywall screwing with um, the collated screws and how like the adapters to do that are very affordable today. It even gives you an item that uh, you can get from DeWalt if you have DeWalt Drill that you can use to do this. And guess what? It's on sale today. That's kind of cool. John Bush will be doing one Kratom question and two crypto questions in a single segment. Well, Jessica Mills, who we haven't heard from in quite a while, will be answering a question on gearing up on a budget for a multi-day backpack for kid and adult alike. Guy's getting his kid into scouts and long-distance hiking, like, like a 10-day hike. First overnight hike on ten days. That'll uh, that'll put the work into you. Jessica has some great resources for you on that. Uh, John Pugliano will talk about loans, sideline cash. What the hell, is sideline cash? You'll find out. And he even throws a ham radio question in there for you today. And then I will have thoughts on our quote of the day today. Quote of the day today came from Alexander Hamilton. You won't find me frequently quoting politicians, even founder politicians, but occasionally I will. I really agree with this quote, and it's deeper than it seems, I think. Alexander Hamilton once said, A promise must never be broken. Never is a big-ass word, isn't it? And if we start thinking about what it means when we make a promise, it, it, it is one of those things where you start to wonder, Well, never? Well, maybe. It depends. Like so many things, and I'll be talking about that. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and dive straight in with a lead-off by Ron Paul and his crew, uh, Dan Adams and Chris Rossini, uh, asking a simple question. If, if, if you can't steal, if you can't just take things from other people, why should government be able to? And is that facade beginning to fall away? Are people beginning to see the ethics and the reality of it?
1: Really, there's a big transfer of wealth that uh, we participate in, which is immoral. And uh, Bastia in the law points this out so clearly. He said, if if you or I can't go out and take our neighbor's stuff because we need it or want it, uh, then the government can't do it either. But it's accepted now, probably by 95 percent of the people. Well, if you're not allowed, if you're not allowed to do it, that's the government's job. Call up the government, call up your lobbyists, call up your your, your representative and send him or her to go steal it to re uh, to distribute distribute to the uh, the uh, the goods and services that you want and and it's it's that argument of morality is this right or wrong and uh, if you put that in terms that what the government is doing by the redistribution of wealth is morally equivalent to what an individual would do if they walked in your house and stole something because they needed it or wanted it so, uh, in those three areas, but I would say pragmatically we 're making progress. I would say philosophically we are too and I think when people hear the moral issue, they do understand it. Certainly, the moral issue should it should be readily apparent to most people on the money issue. They understand what counterfeit is, so the counterfeiters have always been put in bad light, and uh, here uh, we are complacent about the government becoming the counterfeiters. And I think people are waking up there. So, yes, there are a lot of problems, but I think also that we still have tools. In spite of all the shortcomings of the Internet, there's still ways to spread a message. And believe me, an idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by the bureaucrats and, and the armies that want to police and tell us everything to do so that we're on the side of promoting this cause of liberty and hopefully the, so many of you who have joined us before will continue our effort to promote peace and prosperity
2: well you know dr. Paul uh, I'm, as you know I'm a, I'm a non-voter I'm, I'm not into the whole thing I probably would have voted in Virginia had I still been there uh-huh. and it's not because I'm big on the GOP I, I'm not a member of the party but I, just because I wanted to see people punished who had tortured this country for the past almost two years so it really wasn't about I'm all upbeat that we're gonna have a new team and they're gonna be really great no, is I want to see the bad guys punished, and it looks like they may be punished now. Yeah,
1: I, I imagine um, Nancy Pelosi probably had a restless night last night.
2: Well, she uh, may have had a couple of tipples, so she
1: may... <laughs> Maybe she did react. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there were yeah. some positive things individually on the boats that were good. I, I think in general... Um, for, for me, wokeism was challenged. Yeah. When they had a chance, when there was a clear-cut vote on it, that uh, the people were tired of it all. And I think that's very encouraging. Where we are today we're a lot better off than we were the day before yesterday on the promotion of the passport and uh, I, I think that it, it's losing steam people are waking up and it's not American to have internal or external passports the way they've been passing and make it a universal world passport that everybody in the world will be <coughs> tied into this uh, this whole organization where they can tell you take a passport and tell where you were 10 minutes ago. That's, yeah. that's what they would like to do.
2: And let's look at this next clip, because this is a debate that happened between McAuliffe and Youngkin. McAuliffe and Youngkin battle over COVID-19 vaccine mandates. This is from September in Virginia Governor's debate. Uh, they battled over it, and we know which side McAuliffe came down on. Let's look at that next clip. Here's McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe calls for vaccine mandate to, quote, make life <laughs> difficult end quote for the unvaccinated that was back in august 23 well the unvaccinated and a lot of the vaccinated had the final say they said no terry
3: trying to look at the big picture you know we're all imperfect we all have limited knowledge but you know a superficial look at the world today uh, may make you think that the world is coming to an end and a lot of people do think that i refuse to think that i know dr paul does too One other way to look at this is maybe the bad is coming to an end. Because if you look at all the major institutions, they're all losing credibility together. You have the media and the big tech. You know, all the propaganda and censorship has crushed their uh, uh, credibility. You have the government schools. What little credibility they had to begin with are now parents are livid all across the country. Homeschooling is booming. Medicine, a major Uh, you know, crony industry in this country has moved from trust to distrust in a matter of just years. You know, people don't even want to go to the doctor or the hospital anymore. Who trusts them after all that has happened after these few years? You have the Fed, uh, you know, where inflation and shortages are coming up. You have the empire where decade after decade there has been failed wars and there is no appetite for any type of war, at least among the people. And then finally, you have the politicians themselves. Does anybody actually believe that these are public servants? So all this big illusionary thing that has been created over the last hundred years could all be falling apart altogether. We don't know. It's a possibility, I would say. And what happens next is impossible to predict. But one thing that we're going to stick to is the ideas of liberty and what should replace this disaster that has been built up by the Federal Reserve. And that believe, that uh, comes down to individual liberty, sound money, free markets, and a government that is very, very limited and restrained.
0: I just want to say, how, again, how grateful I am that we now have this partnership with Ron Paul and the Ron Paul Liberty Report, that they're providing this content for us on a, a weekly basis. Um, huge props to Chris over there, who you just heard from. Uh, in that segment, for helping to make that possible as well. I wanted to say, I think one of the most interesting things about that segment was the idea that maybe it's not the world is falling apart, but the artificial fake world that they've created that's falling apart. And that can feel like, well, the world is falling apart, and why? Because so many people live in that artificial reality. You know, we we have a lot of discussions about virtual reality, people living inside a computer simulation or something like that in a literal sense. But the reality is we've been living inside a simulation for a very long time. The average American today lives with the equivalent energy expended on their behalf of 600 humans. And that's actually not in of itself a bad thing. The One way you can measure the the success of a civilization how, is how efficiently they've determined a way to use energy. But when we have a society where many people are benefiting from that but not contributing to it in any meaningful way, you can't have a true reality. And you have, then you have to start asking yourself, well, what? Are, what are, how much of that, if, we, if you break it down per capita, it's 600 people per person of energy expenditure. But how many of the elite that do almost nothing, they're literal parasites, like... How many, how many hours or how many humans' labor equivalency goes into supporting their lives? Can that be real? Can that be a reality? And then how much of that energy? like You might think, well, it's great that I have the energy of 600 humans to provide for my needs. And that's what fossil fuels and other energy sources do for us. But what if that energy is not so much used for you, but used against you, used to control you? How much of that energy is used to transmit signals into your brain through television, radio, and social media that program you? And how, I know you, dear listener, are like, well, Jack, that's why I'm listening to you. I understand, but look around you. How many people actually listen to the truth? How many people are, how many people are not triggered by the truth? Think about it that way. How many people don't get mad when you tell them the truth, percentage wise? So if you live in an artificial bubble world like that, a mass delusion for that long, sooner or later, don't all bubbles pop? I think that's what Chris, Dan, and Ron were getting at there, that all bubbles pop, not just financial ones, including bubbles that are just simply bubbles of artificial reality. And maybe it's the artificial reality that's imploding right now. I, I think that's a very interesting and very astute thing to look at. And it might be why in the backlash, for the first time in my adult life, I'm seeing more and more people jump on board with solutions thinking rather than reactionary thinking. All the stuff we've talked about for 13 years here at TSP, communities, local commerce, local food production, right? Communities online and offline. Uh, things like uh, John Bush's um, freedom cells. Like there's more going on with this than I've ever seen in history. In fact, you know, like a little bit later, you're gonna hear from John Bush, and I'll, I'll mention something he's got going on. But he's got 15,000 people registered for a seminar for a seminar on uh, that's called Exit and Build on getting out of the, this system and going somewhere and building our own realities. How many people are jumping in with cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrency is part of this revolution. Whether you've accepted that or not, doesn't matter. It's the case. 20% of Americans own, it's actually 23% to be technically accurate, own some Bitcoin. That's just Bitcoin. Like, there is a transformation of humanity occurring right now. And, it, and we tend to think very gloom and doom, especially in the prepper world. But I'm starting to see this as I always have, but I'm seeing it more and more to be the case that an evolution is even more powerful than a revolution and seldom can either be stopped. I, I'd say seldom can a revolution be stopped, but never can an evolution be stopped. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on shift work from Dr. Ken Berry.
4: Hello, Jack, and all you common sense, well prepared TS peers. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Luke. Luke says how would one go about following a keto or carnivore diet with intermittent fasting while doing a rotation shift work job? After finding this podcast last year, I've been researching carnivore keto. I've also been reading up on the benefits of intermittent fasting to help with chronic inflammation from various injuries in my younger days. I'm in my 30s and between work and home life, I stay fairly active. The problem is my 12 hour rotating nights today's work schedule. I, I try to keep the exact same schedule as far as, uh, as far a time is concerned, just flip breakfast 5.30 on days and dinner 5.30 PM on nights. With this kind of schedule, does that negate any of the benefits of intermittent fasting? Any other advice about meals on this kind of schedule would be appreciated. So first thing to understand, Luke, is that uh, swing shift work like this is inherently not as healthy as being on a daytime schedule. Uh, it's going to keep your cortisol levels a little higher. It's going to keep your epinephrine levels a little higher, which is adrenaline. Uh, and it's going it's to cause a few problems for your health. Now, I'm not saying it's just acutely dangerous, but I am saying I, I know you, you make some shift diff money for this but it may or may not be worth the little extra pay you get. I would if I could shi- if I could snap my fingers and change you over to just a day shift, I would do that for you because it's going to be healthier. With that being said, you just like you rotate w- when you sleep, depending on what shift you're working, you rotate when you use the bathroom, you rotate when you do other your physical activity, you're going to have to rotate your your meal schedule as well. Uh, if you're eating a keto or carnivore diet with intermittent fasting, it actually kind of makes it easier because you don't need three meals a day with three snacks in between. You can actually get your your meal schedule down to two meals a day. And during those two meals, I want you to eat lots of fatty meat and eat until you're comfortably stuffed. And then you can kind of rotate that two meals a day depending on what schedule you are. I think it would be perfect for you to eat two big Uh, meat heavy meals a day within a six hour feasting window. So that gives you an 18 hour fasting window. And then you're just gonna rotate that depending on which uh, shift you're working. I do think that working shift work is going to uh, decrease the benefits you get from keto carnivore and intermittent fasting, but I don't think it's gonna negate them completely uh and so shift work is just going to make the benefits less good but they're still very very good and i think you need to work on doing that i hope this answer helped you and anyone else on shift work if you're on shift work uh, rotating shift shift uh you know swing shift you gotta get off that even if you have to take a a little pay cut okay guys this is dr barry talk to you next time
0: all right next up um Shark bites. Shark bite. Ooh ha ha. Isn't that actually shark bait from uh, Finding Nemo? Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I make a thing I call shark bites. And it's basically when I cut the steaks off a shark, you know, that last little bit down by the tail, I cut up in little nuggets and fry them. And they're delicious. And uh, that's not what these are. This is for repairing copper pipes. And then we're also going to talk about if you've ever seen like professional drywallers, they'll come into uh, a framed up place and they start to put the drywall up. And they'll have these customizable, custom guns that have just drywall screw after drywall screw after drywall screw like a machine gun. You zip, 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 and they're incredibly fast. Those things used to be really expensive. There's a lot of affordable ways to get into them now, but there's more than one kind of expense. There's a one-time expense, and then there's a recurring expense. So those screws that come collated like that, they don't cost the same as a box, So how do you make the decision? What does the it depends depend on in this situation? We'll have both of those right now from Tim of the Toolman Cook.
5: Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here coming back at you from the workshop where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. Back to answer a couple of more questions for the expert council. So let's head right into them. Okay, so the first question comes from Buzz over on Float. And they ask... Are those drywall specialist screwdrivers with magazines worth it, or is it just easier to use a standard drill with the single screws? So I'm going to sound like Jack here, but the answer is it really depends. (laughs) The cost entry on these drywall quick drive screw systems have come down a lot. I remember back when I was working at the hardware store years ago, they were a special order and they were really, really expensive. Now, most of the big box stores have adapters for the main brands of drills that you can buy for not much more than $100. makes it really nice for when you're doing drywall. Now, the downside to them is that the fasteners, they come collated on long plastic strips, really nice, really quick, really efficient, but they're about twice as much as a standard drywall screw. So if you're just doing a room of drywall or, you know, a couple of rooms of drywall, the cost doesn't add up, but it may not be worth the, you know, if you like buying a new tool, great, but it may not be worth the upfront investment. Now, if you're doing a ton of drywall, say you're doing your entire home, It's going to cost you a little more on the fasteners, but it's a lot easier to justify that cost. Now, there's another aspect to think about as well, and these systems don't just use drywall screws. They can also allow you to do decking, and I built a deck this summer, 16 by 24 really big one, and I spent an entire summer afternoon on my knees, bent over, screwing in, and it really hurt my back. They do make these longer adapters that you can get now, and I will uh, include some links in the, to send to Jack so he can put them in the, the description as well, but they're long enough that you can walk along, stand up, and screw down all of your deck boards. Now to me, it wouldn't matter how much that costs, that would be worth the back-saving labor. So if you're looking at doing some really big projects and you like the speed of collated screws and you don't mind spending a little bit extra money, they really do work well and the cost has come down a lot over the last decade or so. So it could be something to look at depending on your project and depending on your budget. Okay, and the second segment this week came out of a discussion I had on social media the other day and someone asked me, and I forgot to write down their name, but what would be, if you're into making sure you can deal with plumbing emergencies, what would be one or two fittings if you could only have those that you would keep on hand for an emergency? Well, I got to say, first off, the most common leak I ever have to deal with tends to be pinhole leaks in copper. If you have water that tends to you know, eat its way through copper over a long period of time, it always seems to happen either on an, a weekend or an evening or an evening weekend that a customer calls you in a panic because they have a pinhole leak in copper. And there is nothing more expensive than calling out a plumber on a weekend or an evening. So if you can have a few fittings on hand and be comfortable enough to deal with some of these plumbing emergencies, it can save you a lot of money and it can help you be just a little bit more self-sufficient. And I got to say, I've never been comfortable with really trying to solder copper pipe. So I was really happy when some of these uh, quick application fittings came out. And the ones that I love and seem to be the industry standard now, and I know Jack likes them too, are Shark Bite fittings. You know, years ago, again, when I worked at the hardware store, they used to have these cheap plastic ones. They ended up getting taken off the market because they weren't reliable. And I think that maybe hurt, you know, the public's perception of some of these other ones. But these shark bite fittings are incredible. And if you could only have a couple on hand, I always used to say a coupling in half inch and three quarters, if you have those types of pipe, if you have both half inch and three quarter copper, keep a coupling of both. And someone else mentioned, why not just keep a valve because they do exactly what a coupling does, but you can also use them as a shutoff. And that's a really good idea. They're a little more money, but if you have a pinhole leak and you have a hacksaw, You just turn your water off, cut about a two inch section out of the pipe where the pinhole leak is in, and then just snap that shark bite fitting into place and you are done. It's a permanent fix. You don't have to call your plumber at that point. You've saved yourself a lot of money and they work. The fittings are completely reusable as well. So get yourself a couple of those little plastic U-clips that are about a buck a piece so that you can remove them if you ever have any trouble. And one of the best things about the SharkBite fittings is they work with copper, they work with PEX plastic pipe, and they work with CPVC plastic pipe as well. So if you need to make a connection from copper and you want to continue on using PEX plastic pipe, just snap on a SharkBite fitting and keep going. Another thing that's really nice to have in a really bad emergency with shark bites are the snap-on caps. So if you have something you can't repair at the time and you can just cut it off and put a cap on there, it may allow you to use the rest of the segments of your house with water while that's shut off. And I had an old plumber buddy who used to actually use those valves. He'd go into some of the older houses that had a three-quarter inch copper feeding the whole house, and when they were originally plumbed, they didn't have a shutoff. And so he had no way of shutting off the water or it was a lot more difficult. So he would just cut through the line, let the water gush, have the valve open, snap it into place and then turn the valve off and he was done. So if you guys are looking for a simple, anyone can use it, effective solution for plumbing problems, look at the shark bite fittings. Okay, guys, that's it for me this week. If you want to find out more about what I'm up to, the quickest way to do it is to run by toolmantim.co. That's toolmantim.co. I got a monthly newsletter. You guys know I got a weekly podcast coming out. Find all my social links. I'm on Float, MeWe, and all the other ones. And, of course, drop by the live stream, Talking Tools, every Sunday night, 7 Mountain Time, 9 Eastern Time. We always have a great time. We're building a cool community. I'd love to see you drop by. And as always guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. And I do have, um, both of the
0: items that Tim mentioned in the show notes for you. What I've started doing on the expert council shows is you'll have my regular resource links, uh, available to you if you check them out down there. And then, Between those and the list of all the expert council members on these shows, you'll see uh, a link heading that is council members and content-specific links for today. And uh, you'll see Tim's uh, screw adapter uh, for DeWalt and the Sharkbite copper repair fittings uh, there as well. Uh, I'll also point out, just as a cool thing, it turns out that if you're a DeWalt person and you want that screw adapter because it makes sense for you, it's on sale for 20 bucks off today. And there's another DeWalt item on sale today, but you'll hear about that in the item of the day. With that, let us move on. And now we're going to hear from John Bush, somebody else we haven't hear, heard from in quite a while. He's been incredibly busy. Um, he's got a Kratom question and a couple crypto questions coming for you right now.
6: What's up, TSP listeners? John Bush here to answer a expert counsel question on Kratom. The question is, how does kratom quality suffer with age, opened and sealed? I have some kratom I ordered from John Bush about a year ago. Some has been opened and some is still sealed. How does quality drop over time, whether opened or sealed? Okay, so uh, before I answer the question, for those not familiar with kratom, it is a member of the coffee family. It's made from the powderized leaves of the kratom evergreen tree. It's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years in Southeast Asia as a folk remedy for energy, focus, uh, stamina when working out in the fields. And it was also used to help people overcome opium addiction. It's been popularized in the West in the past 10 to 20 years, and it most definitely exploded in popularity when the DEA tried to ban it here in the U.S. back in 2016. There's a few different varieties The red types are really good for pain, relaxation. A lot of people take them instead of prescription pain medicine. They help with sleep as well. Uh, The white varieties on the opposite side of the spectrum are good for energy focus. Uh, They're a good social lubricant instead of drinking. Many people use Kratom instead of drinking. My fiance included. She hasn't drank in almost two years, and Kratom played a big role in that. She also quit taking Adderall as well, which is great. Uh, So that's the white variety. It's good for going out, uplifting, focus, motivation. The green varieties are kind of in the middle. They are good for focus, motivation, taking the edge off, I like to say. They're like the white varieties, but a little stronger, and they come with some mild euphoria. So that's what Kratom is all about. A lot of people find a lot of benefit from it. Now back to the question. So at the end of the day, Kratom lasts a pretty good while. Now, of course, fresh kratom is definitely going to have greater potency than kratom that's year, two, three years old. Um, At Brave Botanicals, which is my company, we're constantly bringing in new kratom from Indonesia, and we cycle through it pretty dang quick. So that's one of the great things about going with a smaller kratom vendor. While we are growing, we're not like some of these bigger options out there that you find at the head shops or the gas stations. They have it sitting in warehouses, they buy it in big lots, and then they sell through it, through manufacturers and distributors and all sorts of stuff. So our stuff, when you get it, is fresh. Now, ideally, if you have some Kratom stored or saved, or you're not using it all at the same time, you keep the bag sealed. Keep the bag sealed. That is ideal. And then only open it up when you're ready to use it. If you are going to be storing Kratom, The big factors are to keep moisture out of it. Some people recommend putting it in your freezer, which may be fine on like a short term or maybe like your daily personal stash. But there can be moisture that develops and condensation that develops in the freezer. So I wouldn't advise that for the long term storage. Uh, So you want to avoid moisture. You want to avoid heat. Right. So and you want to avoid light. So don't put it in front of a window. Uh, if you have a home that's, uh, get, you know, turn the air conditioner off perhaps and the temperature really gets up there, then you're going to put it in a cool place that's also a dark place. Cool and dark, you know, like they go hand in hand. So perhaps in the back of a pantry or underneath a bed or in your closet, right? And uh, if you can, try to avoid oxygen. So keep it in the sealed bag like I said before or you can put it in a mason jar or if you have your own vacuum sealer that will help as well and you know to be honest it lasts a pretty good long while like I said it's gonna be more potent the fresher that it is but I do have some clients that are doing their preps and they want to include kratom they don't want to run out of kratom a lot of people rely on it uh, for a higher quality of life that deal with chronic pain and stress and anxiety and such And so they are storing it in some uh, five gallon buckets actually. So uh, make sure that you have that sealed as best as possible. And again, you would want to keep that out of the light. But to answer the question uh, specifically, if it's sealed, it's going to last quite a bit longer than if it's opened, Uh, if it's opened, then that's probably what you would want to cycle through. But honestly, if it's only a year old, it's still going to work just fine for you. In fact, Back in probably 2017 or 2018, I was approached by someone that said a Kratom vendor offloaded a bunch of Kratom on them in 2016 when the government said they were going to add it to Schedule 1 and make it a federal felony to possess. There were a bunch of vendors that got spooked. That's actually when I leaned into the Kratom sales. I saw an opportunity and I knew that until they actually added to schedule one or send out that notice that it's now illegal, that it was still fair game. So I leaned into it. Meanwhile, a bunch of vendors, they closed their doors and I guess I absorbed a bunch of their customers, which I'm not going to complain about. But this person reached out and they're like, this was in like 2017 or 2018. They said, my friend that used to sell Kratom has a bunch of Kratom left since before, like it's a, it was a year old from before the 2016 thing, right? So he's like, they gave it to me in 2016. By then it was already a year old. So this was like in 2017 or 2018. So presumably it was two or three years old. And he's like, uh, I'd like you to take this off my hands, check it out. So I bought it from him, super duper cheap. And I sampled it myself. And sure enough, one of the varieties, I, I got like three varieties from him. One of the varieties was... It was a green malay. It's called green malay. And it was the most potent kratom that I ever had in my life. Right. I, I tossed the other ones, uh, gave them away, didn't sell them. But this kratom I packaged as like a special reserve kind of deal, marketed as a special reserve, uh, aged to perfection, so to speak. And it was actually the most potent kratom that I, that I ever had. Um, I kept some for personal use. Me and my dad would joke about it. It was like our special reserve stash. Um, And then fast forward another year or two or three, I came across my own personal stash there, and wouldn't you know it, it was still pretty damn damn potent. So I share that anecdotally. Um, That was a while ago. Now all the kratom, if you're buying it from Brave Botanicals, it's all fresh, straight from Indonesia. Uh, The batches are tested, uh, quality controlled. We check for heavy metals. We check uh, for impurities, and we uh, definitely... Uh, check the Mitra count account as well. So definitely high quality stuff. So I hope that answers the question. Again, keep it sealed if you can. That's ideal. If you open it up and time passes, you may consider storing it in mason jars that are sealed in cool, dark places. The big factors to be aware of. All it is is dried out plant powder. That's why it lasts so long because the moisture is taken out of it in the drying process. But you want to avoid moisture, you want to avoid heat and sunlight, and you want to avoid oxygen if you can. If folks are interested in trying Kratom, if they haven't tried it before, they can get a free ounce. All you got to do is pay $5 shipping and handling, and I'll ship you a free ounce of our most popular variety, Green Mang Da. It's the most versatile as well. You just go to freeounceofcratom.com. That's freeounceofcratom.com. And you can find our entire selection at mybravebotanicals.com, mybravebotanicals.com. We also sell Delta 8 THC, gummies, doobies, vape. This is like a legal loophole. It's extracted. It's derived from the CBD plant, from the hemp plant, I should say. So it has less than 0.3% Delta-9 THC, right? Delta-8 THC is chemically similar to Delta-9 THC, which is what everyone uses to get high. But uh, it's taken from the hemp plant, which the legal designation of a hemp plant is any plant that, any cannabis plant that has less than 0.3% Delta-9 THC. So it gets you high, feels great. It's more of a subtle high, but it's still, you know, party time and taking the edge off and getting a little giggly, but it comes with less paranoia, less anxiety. And unless you're in one of 11 states, it's completely legal via this hemp act loophole. So you can check that out also at mybraybotanicals.com. All right, T.S. Pierce, keep getting shit done out there. Much love. This is John Bush. I'm out.
0: So if you're like, where are the cryptocurrency questions? I screwed that one up based on his email. He sent me two responses on one email. Uh, we'll hear from John in a future episode on some cryptocurrency questions. Remember, he can handle your stuff on Kratom, uh, on um, on CBD, and uh, all the derivatives that are available now legally in, in the cannabis world. And cryptocurrency, and it wouldn't hurt to throw a business question at the guy either. He's done a lot to grow his business in the last two years. It's been really impressive, and I wanted to mention again, he has the Exit and Build Summit coming up this weekend. I'll be speaking at it, though I'll be teleconferencing in. He asked me to come down for it, and I just, with the workshop coming next week and and, and all, everything I've got going, on, I just couldn't do it. Uh, but he's got like fifteen thousand people uh, registered for it. I think the Saturday side's free and then the Sunday side has a $99 charge or something like that. You can learn about it uh, at, a, at a website he has for it, but I also have this in the uh, show notes and it's it's real simple. It's, it's exitandbuildlandsummit.com. Exitandbuildlandsummit.com. If you forget that, just go by the show notes for today's episode. Click on the link and you got a couple of days left to uh, register for that. Uh, I'll be handling my my portion of it in more of an interview format with them because I just didn't have another presentation in me to put together in in this brief time period. But I'm really excited about what he's doing. And, again, we'll hear from John on Cryptocurrency on the next Expert Council episode. Right now we are going to hear from Jessica Mills on gearing up for backpacking on a budget for father and son going on their first multi-day hike. And they're going from zero to ten days. So, Jessica, help these guys out.
7: Hey y'all, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question for Ryan today. Ryan says, I am planning to go with my son to hike at the Philmont Scout Ranch next year and I'm looking for recommendations for hiking packs for the two of us. Details, my son is 13, about 5'8", and approximately 80 pounds. I am 6'2", and around 200 pounds. We have never hiked long distances before, but the Scout troop is planning on a 10-day hike. I'm wanting to find a solid pack that we will be able to use in the future, but don't want to break the bank either. Thank you for your inspiration. Well, Ryan, thank you for the question and also for being an awesome dad and getting your son involved in scouting and outdoors. And because I'm biased, especially with long distance backpacking, I'm really excited for y'all. Everybody that I've known involved in scouting that's been to Philmont has absolutely loved it and sang it praises. So, Congrats to y'all for your upcoming trip. Now, as far as the pack thing goes, I won't really make a recommendation specifically based on your hats and weights, but that is good information to have. And you'll probably, if you order your packs online, you'll need to do some different measurements, but each brand of pack will give you their specific way to measure yourself if you're gonna order A pack online and I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself because really what I'm going to suggest to you is if you have an REI, especially an REI, nearby or within driving distance, I recommend going there and letting them size you up. Now, any outdoors store in your area can probably size you up and and recommend a pack to fit y'all's bodies the best. But what I love about REI for beginners is they have an amazing return policy. You have up to a year, and that's even after you use the item. So technically, you could get a pack, use it for 364 days, and REI would take it back if you say, "Mm, I don't really like this. Now, I'm not suggesting that you abuse the system, but if you end up shelling out some money for packs that y'all can use long term, then if you don't like the pack after you take it out there on this trip, you at least aren't stuck with it. So, that is one recommendation and probably my top recommendation. Now, the packs they have there for what you're going to need, I mean, they're still going to be probably close to the $200 range a piece. They may have some that are on sale or something like that, and they may have some REI brand stuff that's, you know, a little under $200. But, For a decent pack that's going to last you and is going to fit well and and ride well with all of your gear in it, you're looking to spend probably anywhere from close to two hundred dollars up to three hundred dollars. Now, you don't have to do this. You can certainly go on Facebook. There are some flea markets, virtual flea markets, if you will. There's one group that has over 100,000 members. It's called the Backpacking Gear Flea Market, but there are, as I said, several different groups, so you can shop for some budget gear on there. So What you could do is go to your local REI, try some things on, see what feels good, and then keep checking on Facebook to see if you can get it on sale before you go. And if not, then again, you can always order from REI online. And now there might be a outfitter close to you that will allow you to rent gear. So again, that might be a more budget-friendly option and you're not stuck with the gear if you end up not liking it. I know REI does some rentals. I'm not sure if they do pack rentals, but that's something else that you can look into now. There is a budget pack that costs about $60. You can order it uh, from a website called called AliExpress.com. And I've used this particular pack on, I don't know, probably a five-day trek or so here locally. And it did okay, but I had a lot of camera gear with me, and it was heavy. And it just didn't ride as comfortably as some of the other packs I've owned. So if it's something you want to use long-term, then uh, it might not be what you want, but maybe you want to spend 60 bucks a piece on these budget packs. And that way you learn, okay, this didn't really work out for us. We don't care for backpacking that much. Um, so it's, it's really, you've got several different options here, but the main thing with selecting a pack, regardless of where you decide to hit on the price range is the capacity that you're going to need. Now you say that you're going out for a 10 day hack, but I don't feel like, if I remember with Philmont, it seems like you hit little areas where you can resupply on your food again. I don't feel like y'all are going to be carrying your food for a 10-day trek. If so, you're going to need like an expedition pack and it'll be probably much larger than what you'd want to use on other backpacking trips, but I would check with the Scoutmaster on that and find out. But if you're going to be carrying like three to five day carries of food in your pack, then probably somewhere between a 50 liter to 65 liter would work for y'all. You might want to err on the side of more volume to work with just because I don't know what type of gear y'all are going to be carrying and how bulky it is. You know, it depends on are you using a synthetic sleeping bag or a down sleeping bag Uh, because synthetic definitely takes up a lot more space than a down sleeping bag. So there are a lot of things to consider, but again, with your local outfitter or with REI, you can take all of your gear with you and they will let you pack your stuff into the pack and make sure it's going to fit in there well and they can probably offer you some tips on that. I also have videos on how to pack your pack. Um, so anyway, I hope that this helps a little bit. Sometimes backpacking information can be, you know, like trying to drink from a fire hose when when you're... Uh, Checking into everything. So I know it can be a little bit overwhelming, but one little bite at a time and you'll get it figured out. If you have any more questions as y'all are preparing, please feel free to get those to Jack and I'll be happy to get back on here and answer them for you. But I'm going to send him a video where I use that budget pack I was talking about so you can check it out. And then I'll also send a couple of videos on how I pack my pack. So maybe that'll help y'all as you're preparing. And of course, I'm sure the scout troop will be happy to help y'all with that too, but good luck to y'all. And I hope everything goes well. If any of y'all out there other than Ryan has questions about backpacking, YouTube and et cetera, I'm happy to answer those. All right, y'all see you later.
0: So I've got the two videos by Jessica in the show notes. Again, it's under the section that says council member and content specific links for today, uh, on, uh, on, on getting gear and on exactly how she does her packs. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. I know that she was reading, uh, the, the, the letter of the person asking the question. But when I heard her say, I am six two and, <laughs> and just knowing her, I had to laugh because it sounded like she was saying that about herself. Anyway, uh, we got another one here for you. This one from John Pugliano and we're going to be talking about sideline cash. Unsecured loans, and even a ham radio question. What the heck's sideline cash? Well, it's actually kind of an important metric to look at. John will tell you all about it right now.
8: Hello, TSP. We have questions today on financial matters as well as ham radio, so let's get started. First couple questions come from Aaron. He wants to know what resources I use to measure investor money that's sitting on the sidelines, and specifically to a comment that I made a couple weeks ago, He wanted to know what reference I used when I talked about September being the fourth largest inflow of money into the stock market. Hey, as a side note, I'm recording this on November 2nd. And remember all the gloom and doom talk we heard about an inevitable crash that was going to take place in September or October? Because those are always the most volatile and worst seasonality for the stock market. Well, it didn't happen, did it? We got a little bit of a pullback, maybe about 5% in September. And right now, all the major indices are either at or super close to an all-time record high. You guys that follow cryptocurrency know that those markets are at or near record highs as well. So the bottom line is is that the markets are still flush with cash. There's still plenty of upside. I think the lesson to learn is that you shouldn't be so pessimistic and believe every little chicken little that prophesizes the next big market crash. They rarely happen. Uh, but back to Aaron's question. So specifically when I talked about the fourth largest inflow of money into the stock market back in September, and that was in regards to the money coming in from institutional and hedge fund investors. I was quoting from a news article written by Brian Sozy over at Yahoo Finance that was written September 28th, 2021. The title of the article was People Really Want to Believe This Money-Making Investment Strategy Still Works. You can Google that and see where I got the information from. Now, as far as how I track things like that, I really don't. What I specifically do is I usually draw my information like that from reports that are written by the big money center banks or money managers. And as it relates specifically to money coming into the market by institutional investors, I like to rely on Bank of America. I found over the years that their information on that particular area is very reliable and it's easily accessible in the reports that they put out. And even if you don't subscribe to their specific reports, they're widely quoted in the press. Now, one big caution on this, and I want to emphasize here that I don't use money sitting on the sidelines as a trigger for whether I'm going to make a trade or not. I simply rely on it as anecdotal type data to give me a feel for general investor sentiment. The other thing about money flows, you have to understand the difference between consumer type money and institutional money. A lot of times in the media when they talk about money sitting on the sidelines, they're talking about money that's in savings accounts and checking accounts. Well, that's retail money. That's not money that's really necessarily correlated in any way to what's going on with the stock market. And metrics like that are best used to kind of gauge consumer spending and what may be happening in consumer discretionary markets. But if you're specifically looking at the stock market, then as far as money sitting on the sidelines, then in most cases, that's really just a measurement of how much cash is sitting in money market funds. And a good place to track that is by looking at the Lipper index funds. The reason that money market funds are a good gauge of how much investor money is sitting on the sidelines is because generally, as a professional investor, they're broadly speaking investing in two asset classes. They're either investing in securities, such as individual stocks in the stock market, or they're investing in debt instruments like government or corporate bonds. And so institutional money is always primarily flowing between those two buckets. But whenever the markets get turbulent, or whenever there's some really high levels of uncertainty in the market, institutional investors will temporarily park their money into money market funds. That allows them to be more nimble and be in a fairly risk-free asset class. And in the low interest rate environment we're in right now, those money market funds are earning basically nothing in interest, and so deposits there tend to be really transitory and short-term, and whenever the money's either flowing into those money market funds or flowing out, whether it's going into bonds or whether it's going into equity securities, that kind of gives you some insight as to what the smart money institutional investors are doing with their cash. Aaron was also asking about how to acquire an unsecured loan to purchase a home at an auction. And he's talking about amounts up to around $200,000. Well, Aaron, if you're truly talking about an unsecured loan, that being a loan that has no collateral against it, then I think it would be really hard to find $200,000 in a lump sum from any one lender. Because a loan without collateral puts the lender in a bad position because they have absolutely nothing to attach to or to acquire should you not pay back the debt. There are some banks that I'm aware of that do some extreme, I don't know, I guess what I call pre-approval lending, where you're not only pre-approved, but the loan itself is also fully funded and ready to go. But even with those, I don't think that that would count as same as cash for an auction that's going to require you to settle the debt, usually within a business day. Now, what I do know of is that I've talked to people that have bundled personal loans to come up with the cash that they need to buy at an auction or do some other type of quick sale cash deal. And the way they do it with bundling personal loans, you know, a personal loan is basically what you're asking about. It's just an unsecured loan. It's a signature loan. What people will do, they'll go to some peer-to-peer lending sites. For example, something like Lending Club. But those sites are not going to issue you more than probably a couple ten thousand dollars. I think Lending Club itself has a personal loan limit of only forty thousand dollars. So what people will do, they'll just bundle all those sources. You know, they'll get twenty thousand dollars from a peer-to-peer site, and then they'll get five or ten or more thousand dollars from as many credit cards as they can. They'll bundle all that cash together just before the auction, and then they'll purchase the home that way. And then once they physically own the home they'll get some type of a conventional mortgage on it or an equity line of credit, and they'll use that money to pay off or pay down the personal loans that they bundle together. Personally, I would never do anything like that. I think it's way too big of a credit risk. But again, I've met people that have done it, and they seem to be successful at it. I'm running out of time here. Quickly, let me answer some ham radio questions. Zane and Mike have both asked about high-frequency radios. I'll give you my opinion about which two radios I like the best. But before I even address that, let me just say this. Ham radio gear that's manufactured by a high-quality manufacturer, usually a company in Japan, like Yesu or Icom, their equipment is top-notch. And even if you're buying a radio that was made, you know, 25 years ago, because it's all solid-state, and because the equipment is generally so reliable, just about any modern radio you buy, you know, that's been made in the last 25 years or so, or even longer, is probably going to be a good radio. It all just depends on specifically what you're looking for and what you want to do. If you want to do the newer digital modes, or if you want touch screens or software-defined controls, then obviously with that, you're going to have to go with a newer radio. But I just bring up the fact about used equipment, because it's readily available in the ham radio community, and you can usually get some really good bang for your buck if you buy something used. Now as far as my favorite high frequency radios the two that I own that I really like are the Icom 7300 and the Yaesu FT891. The 7300 is software defined, it has a touch screen, it has most of the new bells and whistles that you would want. It's primarily designed for base operation use, but plenty of people do take it out into the field. You can find them for new on sale for around $1000. The model's been out for a long time now. It's well tested. I still think that for the money, it's the best modern radio that's currently on the market. Now the other radio I have is for mobile use. That's the FT891. It's a great little radio. It's packed and full of features. The limitations on it are that, you know, because of its size and its form factor, it doesn't have a touch screen and all the menus and features are accessed and controlled by push buttons. It can be cumbersome, but it's a fantastic radio, both on transmitting and receiving, and for as small of a package as it is, I think it's definitely worth the money, and they retail new for, I don't know, around $600, $650, something like that. Always look for a sale, especially look for manufacturer's rebates, and avoid shopping for ham radio equipment on places like Amazon, and instead stick to dedicated amateur radio retailers like DX Engineering and Ham Radio Outlet i found that those retailers not only consistently have better prices, but they back everything up with really good service and support. Hey, finally, as to power supplies, don't buy a cheap one. To run high frequency at full power, 100 watts, you're going to need a power supply that's at least 20 amps. I don't really have a preference with power supplies. Some people like the older, larger, and heavier linear power supplies. Other people use the smaller, lighter weight switching power supplies. It's really just a preference thing. If you do go with the switching power supply, make sure that it is specifically used and recommended for high frequency radio. Otherwise you could get a lot of noise and static bleeding over from the switching power supply. Hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast.
0: All right. Good stuff from John. And I I will just say that I I still think some real pain is coming for the market. I, I don't know when, but. We can't have all the problems we do without eventually it hitting bottom lines. Um, there's been a lot of profit taking, and I'm not talking about traders taking profit on trades. I'm talking about profit taking by corporations as small business has been crushed underfoot like, like so many little ants, uh, by big government and big industry during the COVID pandemic. Um, I should say the COVID's pandemic. Um, And that's worked out really well for them, and it's why the market's done so well. And the market has been just pumped with liquidity and bailouts in various forms over and over and over throughout this entire time. Well, the Fed's going to start waning that, um, and that's not bad as long as we get something done about these disruptions in, in, in items. Here's where I'm thinking about this. So recently... I leased a Toyota truck for two years. I did a one-time lease payment, made a hell of a deal, got Toyota to just dropped their pants straight to their ankles by doing that. However, it wasn't as easy as it usually would have been because of limited inventory that they actually have. When I went and met this uh, gentleman, and I've, I've leased from this guy three times now, uh long time guy has been there. That's the kind of guy you want to deal with when you're making deals on vehicles, a guy that's been there for 20 years, you know, and... Uh, I looked at the showroom floor, and I want a car on the showroom floor. The showroom floor was bare, and the lot was pretty empty of cars. But there were a lot of people doing a lot of paperwork inside the showroom. And I said, if every one of these people buys a car today, you don't even have any inventory left. He said, they're buying cars that we know are coming in, you know, in the next week or two. They're pre-buying them before they get here. And I said, wow, that must be really good. He says, it's terrible. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes... I can't sell as many cars as I need to sell because I don't have enough cars to sell. Okay, that's Toyota vehicles. And, and and one thing we need to understand, when you hear Toyota, you think Japan. Well, Toyotas are mostly built in the United States. Now, a lot of pieces, components, and parts, and chips come from overseas. But the manufacturing is being done. Like my truck that I'm leasing, I think it was built in... I think it was built in Tennessee, actually. I'm not sure now, but it's 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 Tennessee or Louisiana or something like that. And that's trucks. So eventually, companies start to start to have their profits, or even if their margins are great, when you don't have enough inventory to cover demand, you start having waning profits, and you start when you then come out with your end of year reporting, that doesn't look good to investors. That's just one thing I see. And if people start getting bad sentiment because, you know, like you go to the grocery store and can't buy food, um, a lot of things start to change really, really fast. So be careful. Uh, we could sail along for another year or two with a market artificially inflated and continuing to go up. Um, you're definitely better off in equities than cash, but be careful. That's my thoughts on that. Now let's talk about the quote of the day today from Alexander Hamilton. And if we have any, amorous toward Mr. Hamilton for any reason. Let's put it aside for the purpose of evaluating the quote on its own for that one thing at that one time. He said a promise must never be broken. And when I think about that, it real quick leads to one side of me wants to be 100% behind it. Like, I agree. I try to never break my promises to anybody or anything, but must never be. That, that's, you know, that's kind of up there in the second amendment. It's pretty clear. Shall not be infringed. It doesn't mean any of the shit that these people say that it means, right? It's very clear. This thing shall not occur. Period. End of story. Shall not be infringed. <laughs> Punctuation mark. Done. This will not be done. Okay? So when you say a promise must never be broken, a promise shall not be broken. Well, are there not times When we've made a promise that becomes impossible to fulfill. For instance, if I say, I promise that I will be home for Christmas. I promise I'll be home for Christmas. And a couple days later, I get hit by a car and I end up in a coma. I don't really have any control over coming home for Christmas, much less if I'll still be alive when Christmas comes. And I think most people take that type of an idea and say, okay, we are mortals. If you die, you are uh, absolved of your promises, uh, as long as those promises required that you be alive. If I promise to leave you my house, I better have a will that says that's going to happen, right? Well let's say if I promise to leave you my house, and I fall on hard times economically, and the bank takes my house away, how can I leave it to you now? You see, there are things that we can say completely well-intentioned, that we, we have every intention of doing, that we would never violate, but circumstances may move in such a way that we no longer have the capability, physical, mental, or otherwise, to fulfill that promise. What does that mean? What does that mean? What to me it really means is that we should never make a promise, in a way where it cannot be fulfilled, where that is part of the promise. In other words, if I promise to you to leave you my home, I might want to make sure that you understand, contingent upon the fact that I'm able to keep my home, if I own this home when I die, I I will bequeath it to you. That's a promise that I absolutely can keep. There's, There's no reason in the world that I can't keep that promise, because I put a contingency in it. And I haven't put a contingency in there to my benefit. That's the other side of the contingencies when it comes to promises. The contingency is, so long as I am able. If you think about the fact that we can all die, when you tell your loved one, I will never leave you, if it's not understood that you mean until the day that I die, then you're lying. You're, you're making a promise you can't possibly keep. Someday you will die. Maybe they'll die first. And then I guess you've kept your promise. There's another side to this lesson, though. I guess maybe there's multiple sides. One is that we should infer that as the person receiving the promise. If your uncle promises to leave his money to you, but he loses his money, you should not be angry with him when he dies. We should be you know, logical that way. But with that understanding, with those contingencies laid out, a promise once broken negates any further promises from he who makes said promise. That's what Hamilton was actually talking about when he said a promise must never be broken. If you've promised another nation to be their ally, including the contingencies, if those contingencies don't come up, like we promise to be your ally, as long as you don't start nuking people, right? As long as they don't start nuking people, and then you know they're attacked. We should stand with them, or they can no longer trust us as their ally. If your government promises something's temporary and then makes it permanent, you should never trust your government ever again. Now, I I personally think that never trusting government stands on its own. But for people who haven't quite woken up to that yet, why would you trust somebody that lies to you? Do you know how many times the government said something was temporary that became permanent? Let's go all the way back to the 1970s. President Nixon does what is referred to as closing the gold window. So we all know that we came off a 100% gold standard under FDR, and they took away the right of people to own gold, and they falsely set uh, the equivalency of the dollar to gold, and then they falsely locked that equivalency for time. By the 1970s, that was becoming unsustainable, and uh, nations, but particularly France, began to rebel against the U.S.'s dominance and began to cash in all their dollars for gold. And in response to this, President of the United States, Richard Nixon at the time, came out and said that we were going to come off the gold standards. What most people don't know is if you go listen to the actual announcement by President Nixon, he said, temporarily. He said temporarily. He said it would be temporary that we would stop doing this because we were dealing with a hostile actor that was supposed to be an ally, so we had to do this for a time. And we turned around and made a deal with the Arabs and created the petrodollar and never went back, and we lied. Now, I could come up with a whole bunch more times that your government told you something was temporary prior to the 1970s. And I bet you can come up with a whole bunch of times since, well, 2019, the government told you something was temporary and it ended up being permanent. So how can you trust anything? How can you trust anything that you are told by government? I saw a meme today and I really liked it. I almost made it the image for today's podcast feed. There's a couple little kids sitting at a desk, and mommy's up at a chalkboard writing, and they're all happy and learning. I said, first day of homeschool. And what mom wrote on the chalkboard was, everything the state says is a lie, and everything that it has, it has stolen. And there are people that would say, that's an extremist view. That's not true. Not everything it says is a lie. It is. It is. Everything it says is a lie, even when the thing itself individually would be true. How can that be true? Like The President of the United States came out and told you the sky is blue. The reason it's a lie, even when it's true, when the state says it, is the state's saying it with the perception of authority. The sky is blue, being told to you by the state, is an assertion that it is blue because the state says so. So even when they're speaking technically the truth, they're still lying because their authority does not is not required for the truth to be true. The truth is true. As long as humans' eyeballs work the way they do and we perceive with our rods and cones light scattered by the atmosphere into the color that we refer to as human beings as blue, then that is the case. As long as the word and the concept of blue has existed for humans, the sky has been blue during the day for humans, unless it's clouded over or something like that. We don't need a state to tell us that. But you'll find that the majority of the statements the state makes tend to be, in one way or another, contrary to what your eyes, your ears, and your heart, and by your heart in this case, I mean your internal moral ethics as a human. The moral code that is written to you is, I believe, part of the code of creation of humanity. It's counter to it. And it is, in fact, not only a lie because they are perceived as an authority that is not legitimate, but it is a lie because it is an untruth. It is a lie in the conventional sense. So anything that the state tells you that has any meaning in your life, because, again, you don't need them to tell you that the sky is blue. You don't need the state to tell you to look both ways before you walk across the street. You don't need the state to tell you those things. But when it tells you that a diet based on grains is the healthiest diet you can eat, that is not only a lie due to their false sense of authority over you. It's a lie because it's not true. It's a lie because we have almost as many dialysis clinics in major cities today as we do fast food restaurants. It's a lie because their method of eating, their diet they recommend, has created an obesity and disease epidemic in America. That's just one example. Everything that the state says is a lie because they have no authority from which to decree it. The the authority itself is false. It is forced by proxy on behalf of people who have done nothing to earn your loyalty. Next, Everything that it has, it has stolen. There is nothing the state has that it has not stolen, either directly or indirectly. And by directly, I mean anytime they tax something to pay for something, they stole it. Just like Ron Paul and his, his guys talked about today. It's theft. But even when something is granted to the state, when I die, I give this piece of land to the state as a park. If I give you that piece of land, you have to be able to defend it. You have to be able to maintain it. You have to be able to maintain its value. How does the state do that? The state does that through the use of force that they acquire by stealing from other people. So even when something is granted to the state, voluntarily, it is maintained by the state through the theft of other property. Everything the state has it is stolen. Everything. And everything that it says is a lie. And a promise must never be broken. And the reason that you must not break your promises, when you break trust, then there is no reason for you to be trusted ever again. So we must be careful with what we promise and how we promise it. We must be clear with a promise. We must be clear like the surgeon who believes there's a 99% chance that your loved one will survive an operation but knows there are always bad outcomes. So when they promise, they say, I promise I will do everything I can to make sure your loved one gets through this. And they have a very high probability. I promise they have an incredibly high probability of being just fine at the end of this. But if you have a surgeon that says, I promise they'll be fine when they're going in for any kind of significant surgery, you have a surgeon you can't trust. They just lied to you, and they know they lied to you. They know they lied to you. And I'd get a new surgeon. Because I need an honest surgeon, period. When you find an honest government, you let me know. Because everything the state says is a lie. And everything it has, it has stolen. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You can't forget it. Tspaz, come on, tspaz.com. Go there, and you will find all the items that I've reviewed over the years. As you know, if I wouldn't buy it again, if I wouldn't spend my own money on it, I wouldn't recommend it to you. Today's an item that I've never actually reviewed. I never got around to doing it, but I do own it. It's the DeWalt 20-volt, 30-degree framing nailer. And the way that this ended up happening, I had set up multiple price alerts on this, and I got one that was on Amazon Renewed about a year ago, and it was a bare tool, not the kit like this one is today. It was just the tool. And I have so many chargers and batteries, I don't care. And I got a great deal on it, and I bought it, and I just never got around to reviewing it. It, like, hit right about the time I was doing a workshop, and it just, one of those things that just cascades and you. One day I'm going to do this. And uh, But I had all those price alerts set up, and I never shut them off. And I got an alert today for the kit version, which is a battery a charger, a bag, and the 30-degree framing nailer for 369 bucks. This usually sells in like the 440 range. I had set my alert somewhere in a 380 range. and thought if it gets down there, I'll probably go ahead and buy the kit. And I was looking for the Bear Tool because, well, you know, it's cheaper and it's a pretty big expenditure and all. And, and again, always check Amazon Renewed for stuff like this because a lot of times it's there and it's, it's not actually renewed. It's just returns and stuff like that. And most of them are brand new. Um, but when this came, in, I'm like, I got to put it up. And having had this thing for a year now, my only regret is I waited that long to buy one because they're so expensive. It has every project I've done since I've bought this. I feel like the individual project made it pay for itself in time-saving labor of being able to drive framing-size nails with a cordless nailer. I will probably never use a pneumatic nailer, you know, air compressor-style one ever again. Um, there are, you know, it is kind of heavy and you, it's not quite as quick. Uh, if you're going real fast, I don't go real fast anyway. I'm careful with nail guns because nails do come out the other side, et cetera. You can miss. And sometimes if you get in a hurry, you can miss and find a finger. All right. So, um, it doesn't really slow me down much at all. Cause I'm not that fast, but it is a fantastic tool. And I say in the little short ride-up that I have today, cause it's just like, Hey, this thing's on sale. You might want to get it. Uh, wives, and I know this might sound sexist to some, but this is a preponderance of, of the population, not all. I know some ladies are more into tools than guys. But in general, you know, kind of guys are going, her tools, more power. Um, if you're looking for a really badass gift for your husband, and he's a DeWalt person already, so you know he has DeWalt chargers and stuff like that, and you know he doesn't have one of these already. Holy crap. If your old man opens one of these on Christmas Day, he's going to be real happy. I'll just say that. Um... I can't emphasize how good this tool is, how well it works. There's a little bit of a learning curve with setting your 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 impact based on the size of the nails and all. It's all in the manual or in tons of uh, YouTube uh, videos about it. Check it out today. I love this thing, and at 369, I think is the price today. It is a hell of a deal. I think I paid three forty or three thirty somewhere in that range for the bare tool on renewed. And so this is uh three sixty nine for the tool and the charger uh, and the battery. And batteries are expensive, guys. And you know mm-hmm. charge thirty five, forty bucks. So anyway, there you go. And you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up again. We are just gonna play the full version of the Revolution is you today. Uh, I think I will start having music again for you uh, after the workshop, and uh, we'll be going back to our musical programming by uh, community member John Adam after the first of the year. With that, let's uh, wrap up. You guys have a great day. It's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
9: They pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out?